So during our time together this morning, we're going to be talking about what distinguishes Jesus. What distinguishes Jesus and therefore what causes us to trust Him and to be devoted to Him. We shouldn't trust everyone. We shouldn't trust just anyone. We shouldn't be devoted to everyone. We shouldn't be devoted to just anyone. Uh, but it is because of, Jesus, of who Jesus is, because of what He has the power to do, that, that He's so different, He's so distinguished, that we find ourselves compelled to trust Him, that we find ourselves compelled to follow Him. And to do this, we're going to look at the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And so if you would like to join me in looking at the 20th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, that would be wonderful. We're going to look at the end of that chapter, verses 29 to 34. If you're just joining us, welcome. We've been studying this Gospel account for some time now, and we find ourselves at this place. Um, Jesus has set His face, the Bible says, toward Jerusalem. Uh, so it is growing close to that time when he will suffer, that he will die a sinner's death, though he was perfect, and he will be crucified and raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in him. We're getting close to that dark good moment, um, is what we're getting close to. And on the way, uh, he's going past Jericho. Usually we think of Jericho as Joshua uh, and the walls that fall down, same place. Uh, it's about 14 miles from Jerusalem and about 3,000 feet elevated. So it's quite, it's literal going up to Jerusalem with quite the climb and he's getting ever so close and that's where we find ourselves right now. Let's go ahead and read that passage together and then we'll look at it a little closer. It says in verse 29 of Matthew 20, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And at this time, I'll invite you to join me in taking a little closer look and to highlight some of those distinguishing characteristics or actions, qualities, so I plan, if you're a note taker, I have three points in my outline today, like most preachers do every Sunday. I kid, uh, I usually don't, but there are three distinctives I would like to highlight from our passage. So three striking distinctives about Jesus that cause me to trust him, that cause me to want to be devoted to him, and hopefully the same will be true of you also. Number one, Jesus is merciful and compassionate. That's the first distinctive. Jesus is merciful and compassionate. Number two, next distinctive, Jesus is opposed to being managed. Jesus is opposed to being managed. And number three, Jesus is the life-giving Messiah. He is the life-giving Messiah. Number one, first striking distinctive, Jesus is merciful and compassionate. And before we actually talk about that, we're going to look at those he is 
merciful toward and compassionate toward. And they are the two blind men who are desperate. Let's emphasize the desperate part a little bit. If you're blind, you are desperate. Mark's account in Mark chapter 10 verse 46 names one of these men named Bartimaeus. But they're desperate because they're blind. They're desperate because they're seated by the road. And if you're seated by the road of an important town like Jericho, you're probably there to do what if you're blind in the first century? You're probably there to get handouts, right? To receive uh, the alms, to, 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 to beg. And no doubt that's what they're there doing. This is a well-traveled road, a Roman road. Uh, might not be the Romans road you know of, but it is a Roman road that goes up to Jerusalem. And this is highway and byway. This would be a good place for you to be uh, if you're blind. It would also be a good place to be uh, for you if you're blind uh, because it's a great city. Uh, th- this, is, this is the place you'd want to go if you have money. Uh, Jericho was known for its beauty. Uh, it's surrounded by desert, and yet it is a literal oasis. Uh, it's not a, a wonderful, great city today, but even if you're in the Middle East today and you see Jericho, you see that it's green and you see palm trees. Uh, it might not be a wonderful oasis vacation place today, but it looks far better than what surrounds it. Okay, It looks nice. Um, it was known in the first century, even according to Josephus, the Jewish commentator, uh, as a place where if it happened to snow in Jerusalem, which doesn't happen very often, you'd want to be in Jericho because you could still wear shorts. Josephus doesn't say that, but it, it would still be nice. It'd still be a nice place to be. Um, it's a nice place when it comes to climate. It's a place where if you're a smart homeless person, you wouldn't go to Omaha. Um, I digress. You'd go to Santa Monica, where there are lots of people who are wealthy, where you could maybe get handouts and the weather is good. Well, Jericho, first century Middle East, would be that kind of place. They're desperate. They're also desperate because it is known according to, it might be Josephus, it might be Alfred Edersheim, I don't remember, I get these names mixed up in my mind, these Jewish names. Um, They were known as a town where they had a certain plant growing uh, that uh, produced a, a balm, an ointment that could cure people's bad eyesight. Well, I'm not suggesting that we know that's why these guys were there. But I am going to tell you, if they tried it, what? It didn't work. It didn't work. So they, I think it's safe to say, are in a desperate situation. We also know they're desperate, according to verse 30. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Well, when you're desperate, you say, give me what I don't deserve, right? And not only that, they're not only going to say it once, they're going to be ridiculed and criticized, and they're going to say it again. I'm going to really emphasize the fact that they're desperate. In fact, it does happen there again in verse 31. The the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent which is a nice way of saying something else. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Isn't it fascinating? I won't do this anymore after this, I promise. How desperate they are to command one they name as king. You do that when there's no longer time for niceties. There's no longer time to preface your statements. Uh, you've tried anything and everything, and they call him Lord, Son of David. If he is that one, if he is the king, it's usually not a good idea to command royalty. But it might be what you do if you have no hope. 
This is our one opportunity, perhaps, to finally, from someone, get hope two times in the imperative mood. Do this for us. Typically, I don't think it's a good idea to command royalty. Probably a good idea for them. And they get Jesus' attention. In Mark's account, Mark chapter 10 tells us that when Jesus does stop and respond, uh, one of them throws off his cloak, springs up, and comes to Jesus. Maybe they're desperate. Okay, verse 32 then says, And stopping, I bet that made for good drama, right? Jesus stops, alive in his tracks. See what I did there? And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? As if he doesn't know. But for everyone to hear it, for everyone to know, verse 33 says, They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Let our eyes be opened. That's what they want. And he would have known that, obviously. Help us when no one has been able to help us. Then 34 says, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Some of your translations don't say in pity. Uh, Some of your translations might say something with the word compassion. And I like that better because pity is such, at least the way I use pity in the 21st century as a modern American, pity is a pretty negative kind of word. It's not really a negative word. He has, he, he's, he's moved with compassion, caring, concern. Now, it is kind of a negative word to a 21st century modern American if we were being literal because he's actually, it's actually from the Greek text, a word uh, describing your intestines. But they don't think of it the way we think of it. It was used in the first century as utter earnestness. In other words, at the very, and I've talked about this before, so, so forgive me if you've heard it a million times, internal from the from the deepest recesses of your feelings he shows kindness to them so it's not external it's not put on a happy face it's not even pat when pat tries to be compassionate and i do or you because you try to be compassionate and hopefully you do we've all tried at different times maybe succeeding and failing but but none of us are him and i do want to highlight that for you The one who is holy, perfect, undefiled, righteous, has compassion, care, concern, earnestness, genuineness, and he helps them. This is characteristic of Jesus. I'm not making too much out of this. Matthew's been highlighting it again and again and again, no doubt to show us that he's distinct and worthy of trust and devotion. I'll give you some rapid fire text by way of example. Matthew 9, 36. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So there's spiritual compassion. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. And I think we could go on and on and on. He's distinct. He's different. Caring for them physically, caring for them spiritually, having compassion. I I want to encourage you to remember this is who Jesus is. He's the compassionate one. 
I like compassionate people in my life. I hope I have many of them for the rest of my days. But even the most compassionate person ever, other than Christ, has less than perfect motives, let's say. The best of the best. And so therefore, if you're with them long enough and through enough, they are going to let you down. And so sometimes we talk about having functional saviors. Well, a functional savior doesn't deliver ultimately. And so I want to encourage you as a Christian to see Jesus here who time and time and time again, Matthew emphasizes it, genuinely with true earnestness acts on behalf of his people for good. In other words, you can trust him. You can trust him when you can't trust me. You can trust him when you can't trust someone else who's otherwise been trustworthy. And this is healthy for us as Christians to remember this. Important for us. Maybe to emphasize it just a little bit more. I, I've, I don't want this to have, this is not a counseling session for me. Sometimes it is. Um, <laughs> but you can relate to the fact that so many people that you maybe admired or benefited from or looked up to over time, they don't meet your expectation. And they don't care internally, earnestly, genuinely, authentically. We could keep giving synonyms the way that you really wanted them to or you really needed them to. I so like to see Jesus as different, distinct, compassionate, 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 compassionate. So when you can't trust anybody else to truly, genuinely, earnestly care, I'm here to tell you, based upon this gospel account, Look to Christ. Look to Christ. In their desperation, He meets the need. He meets the need. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet, and I'll, I want to go back to before we move on to number two, because the, the striking feature was merciful and compassionate. Two times, right? What do the blind men say to Jesus in command mode? Bless their hearts. <laughs> Be merciful. Be merciful. Which is a great, great thing for them to be saying. Be merciful. Be merciful. You may have already forgotten. I mean, it's been only like 15 minutes, but I have a pretty short memory. Uh, in our psalm that we read in Psalm 140, David asks God to deliver him and do what he's asking, not because David is worthy and great, though David was worthy and great, lowercase w, lowercase g, worthy and great. Be merciful. And here, these blind individuals who are desperate physically do something good for us, not because we deserve it. Do something good for us because you are merciful. Mercy. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And I want to talk just a little bit about mercy and how important it is for us to see Jesus as not only compassionate, but also merciful. It's a great, great, important Christian word. So sometimes, when, I mean, grace and mercy are, are, are friends, right? They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Sometimes I think it's appropriate to have them overlap. In fact, they do overlap. But just for the sake of thinking, um, considering, um, dissecting, if you will, to, to greater appreciation, um, we, sometimes we say grace is unmerited favor. 
You don't earn it, but God gives you something free. Salvation is a free gift from God, for by grace you have been saved. Great to think of it in terms of unmerited favor. We don't deserve anything uh, good, but God gives us something good. With me so far? Figured so. Uh, I am at Omaha Bible Church, after all. So, mercy can have a, a negative um, hue to it in this sense. It assumes you deserve something bad. You receive something good even though you deserve something bad. So one thoughtful theologian uh, said, think of it in terms of demerited favor. Unmerited favor, that's true, it's definitely true. But we're not spiritually neutral. We're actually guilty, worthy of condemnation. According to the New Testament and Old Testament, we're sinful. We deserve condemnation. We don't deserve, we're not spiritually neutral. We're, we're in the red, guilty, if you will. We've violated God's standards. Demerited favor. I deserve condemnation. He gives me salvation, or in this case, He gives them healing physically, as Messiah will do, as we'll see. Jesus might even be better than we thought he was when we think in terms of all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. When we think in terms of that reality, you say, oh, I'm just not neutral. And these guys maybe knew more than they were saying, but still, have mercy on us. We don't deserve Son of David, Messiah, King to do anything for us. And they would be right. They would be right. And so I would encourage you to remember that when we're talking about Christ doing things for people, good things, He does things for people even though they're not worthy of the good thing, they're actually worthy of the judgment. Jesus might even be a better Savior than you realized. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I think that's true. The more I understand, the more I think that's true. I hope it's the same with you. Well, we should move on to the next one. The next one would be number two, striking distinctive number two, and that would be Jesus is opposed to being managed. He's opposed to being managed. Maybe another way to put that, he opposes, uh, he, he refuses to be handled even by well-meaning followers. So when it comes to him, uh, we learned in chapter 20, verse 28, he came not to be served, remember, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, ultimately. But leading up to that, he, he came to serve. And here we see him serving by way of showing compassion. And serving by way of being merciful. And helping people with their temporal, physical needs, but extraordinarily so. And yet, what is happening? He's doing this. And it, he's being opposed by otherwise well-meaning, I'm going to call them, handlers. Uh, those who, those were, who they, they, they were his managers. And Jesus, because he's sovereign or king or Messiah, those are all just synonymous, he does what he wants to do. And he came to serve and he came to show compassion and mercy and extend his compassion and mercy to those he wants to show his compassion and mercy to. And apparently, obvious from this passage, he wants to show his compassion and mercy to these two blind men. And so guess what Jesus, sovereign king Christ, does what he wants to do even if it's not what other, perhaps, well-meaning people want him to do. I like that. 
The Jesus who refuses to be handled. The Jesus who refuses to be managed. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Contrast that with verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Notice the contrast. The crowd versus Jesus. The well-meaning crowd versus Jesus. I like Luke's account even better. Can I say that? I shouldn't say it that way. I like, I really also, in addition, like Luke's account. Because <laughs> both are good. But, but Luke's account puts it this way. In Luke chapter 18, verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. I think, I think it's saying that he commands of the people in general, bring that man to me. So they're saying, hey, you guys shut up. And Jesus says to those who are saying, shut up, you bring him to me and you bring him to me now. I like it. I like it that Jesus is not in anybody's pocket. I like it that Jesus refuses to be anybody's poster child for their cause. I like it that Jesus isn't taking a poll on what he should do when it comes to his compassion and mercy. I like it that Jesus is counter the culture there. And nothing will stop him. Nothing will cause him to deviate from serving, because that's what he came to do, ultimately giving his life in, in the ultimate service. But on his way there, it's serving as Messiah. I love that. I want to trust him. And if we step back and even we, we think about the day that we live in and, and everybody wants to claim Jesus for their cause, you know, so I'm not even going to start naming examples. Well, Jesus would do this and Jesus would do this and Jesus would vote this way and Jesus would be about this particular cause and Jesus would be about this other cause and both sides claim him and every side claims him and all this kind of stuff. I'm just so thankful that Jesus is the sovereign and nothing will deviate him from doing what he came here to do and all of those other causes and there are some good causes in the world but they're all lesser causes than what he came to do and so to be quite honest with you I'm offended when people claim Jesus for lesser causes because it distracts from what he actually came to do and that is to serve compassionately mercifully and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. It causes me to say, that guy that, that I was trusting in, and I'm going to trust him more now, can't be bought, can't be manipulated, can't be pressured. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to go back on things because of pressure. Even think about the great promises in the Bible that we love so, so much. We, we love the fact that Jesus said, um, though you die, you will live if you trust in me. Talking about resurrection. I'm all the more to believe a passage like that and to keep believing a passage like that when I see it came from the mouth of a Jesus like this. Resolved, resolute, doing what he came to do, can't be, be manipulated, can't be bought off, is in nobody's pocket. Awesome. It's great. Now, as a little bit further aside, and I don't want to, I'm going to stretch this a little bit. By way of application also, 
I think we should trust Him and trust Him more. And I think we should be devoted to Him because of what He's done for us. But a little bit more application for the here and now also. Jesus isn't here. So we're in a different time. Um, And now He is here by the power of His Spirit. We know that to be true. But bodily He ascended and bodily He will return. But He has called us as the body of Christ, His church, to do certain things. And it's a pretty short list. It's pretty focused. And so by way of application, when it comes time for me to be tempted to do something else, because there's pressure, even from well-meaning people, to do other things, because there are a lot of good things to do. This, this, this kind of text helps me to say, you know, there were well-meaning followers of Jesus then that he had to say no to. Because he was all about his main thing, chapter 20, verse 28, serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. It was all about that ultimately. And so I'm all the more apt to say when we're called to preach Christ, I think we need to focus on preaching Christ. Um, because there are good, other good things, but there are always going to be lesser things. And there are lots of other people who can do all of the other good things. But only the church can be the church, proclaiming and defending good news of redemption in Christ. I love the resolute, can't be bought, won't be managed, Jesus that we see in the text of Scripture like here. Okay, let's move on to a third striking uh, distinctive that hopefully solicits or elicits, I should say, trust and devotion. Number three, Jesus is the life-giving Messiah. He is the life-giving Messiah. Is Jesus the first Messiah? No, he's not the first Messiah. Is he the only Messiah? No, and I realize I'm tricking some of you, but the reality is there were many Messiahs because a king is a Messiah. So you, you all know about David being a Messiah because he's anointed by God. So there, there are many Christs, there are many anointed ones, many kings. Uh, and then if we want to narrow it even more in the world, but then if we want to narrow it even more in the nation of Israel, there have been many Christs. Numerous, I should say. Many anointed kings. True. Lowercase c. There have been other messiahs. Always designed to point forward toward the ultimate one who will rule and reign forever, who will live forever according to the promise of Second Samuel chapter 7. So when I say he's the life-giving Christ... He's the life-giving Messiah. He's the extraordinary one. He's the one all of human history has been waiting for, Christ. And we see it right here, even in his ability to heal. He says, it says in verse 34, moved with compassion, Jesus, remember chapter 1, verse 21, the one who came to save his people from their sins, touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. First blush, you might think, how do you get that out of that verse? That he is the life-giving Messiah. I get that out of that verse because of one thing. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Well, I suppose there's a little bit more. When they call him son of David, they're on to something. But I get that because when I step back and look at, look at Matthew 1 to 28, not to mention other texts, not to mention messianic prophecies, Christological prophecies, I go... He's the life-giving spirit because if he can heal like that, he can do other things. 
Follow me, please. Don't take my word for it. But for example, when Jesus is in Nazareth and asks for the scroll and goes to Isaiah 61, there are numerous things listed. But one of the numerous things that the life-giving Messiah will be able to do is give sight to the blind. So by him doing this one thing, I know I have more evidence that he is able to do the other things is where I'm going with this. If you want to, you can go ahead and look at Luke chapter 4, verse 17 to 21. I'm going to go ahead and read that where Jesus in Nazareth as a young person reads the scroll of Isaiah 61. But where, if you're turning there, great. I'll give you just a moment to do that. But to reiterate, or maybe to say it another way, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he's been doing these Messiah things. He's been doing the extraordinary deliverance. He's been freeing oppressed people, whether they be demon-oppressed or otherwise. He's been healing. He's done it on occasion after occasion after occasion in front of different kinds of audiences, Jews and Gentiles. He's done all of the things that the Messiah would be able to do. The one who could not only save his people from their sins, 121, but deliver them from the effects of sin, which Messiah will do. Okay? Pain, suffering, physical, spiritual, mental, all of those things, because he will be the ultimate great deliverer to cure every ill eventually. Okay? He's, he's got to be that one. What is a king supposed to do uh, in the ancient world, at least a godly king or an effective king? Maybe I'll just say it that way. They're going to protect their people. They're going to provide for their people. They're not going to manipulate their people. So they're going to have good motives and they're going to be able to deliver their people when their people are in danger. That's what good lesser Christs have been supposed, they've supposed to, they've been able, that's what they've, how do I want to say this? (laughs) It's what they're supposed to do. And now we have the ultimate deliverer, king, protector, provider, restorer, the Messiah. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verse 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, was, he has anointed me, notice the many things, to proclaim good news to the poor, Gospel news. It's our word for gospel. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom or deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. There's the one thing we're seeing in our text, but it's couched in between all of these, all of these others to set at liberty or freedom those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then how about verse 21? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is starting to be fulfilled in your hearing. See what I did there? doesn't say that. doesn't say starting to be. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which is one of those tweaks in one sense. And you put an eyebrow up and you say, well, He's young. How, how could he say that it's been fulfilled. Well, he could say it's been fulfilled because of who he is. And because of who he is, absolutely, no matter what, without question, he's going to deliver 
again and again and again and again, proving that he is the one. It's a guaranteed fact he's even going to be raised from the dead because he's Jesus Christ the righteous. Before any of it even happens, by him being the one, he says, it's fulfilled. Now, you might be a skeptic sitting there in the synagogue and say, well, we'll we'll see. Fair enough. I would submit to you, it's what we're seeing. He wasn't just blowing smoke. He wasn't just making grandiose claims. As our text would give support to. So as the psalm would say in Psalm 110, He won't undergo decay, the Holy One. He won't undergo decay. It's all as good as done. So when I read our text and He does one of the things, give sight to the blind, I say, there it is. He's showing that He is the life-giving Messiah. The one who will restore all things and bring perfect resurrection. But in that case, it's by way of preview. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He hasn't been raised from the dead yet. But he's showing, as the old song would say, or and or, again and again. He's the one. He's the one. He's the life-giving Messiah. The ultimate David. The one who will have a funeral, but he won't stay dead. And so he can give life and restoration, deliverance from sin and all of its effects, ultimately. I love it. This makes me trust him. Distinct, different, not like the rest. Now, since we're on the topic of of him healing instantly and all of these sorts of things, uh, maybe by way of extension, I've done this many times, but a lot of you are, are, are newer than not. Uh, I want to I want to borrow and I want to go to another messianic prophecy that speaks in similar terms, not Isaiah 61, but another one that has to do with healing where lots of Christians are confused. But it's also spoken of in the past tense. Been fulfilled? It hadn't been fulfilled. But we know because of Christ's sure work, he could say it's been fulfilled. Another one would be, just to help some of you that need some help on this, would be Isaiah 53. So a little bit of a broken record here for those of you who've been here uh, a while. But in Isaiah 53, another messianic prophecy, it says, by his wounds or by his stripes, you are healed. Now, is that true? It's a trick question. Of course it's true. It's what the Bible says. I don't want to get fired. Uh, and, And it's true. By his stripes, you are healed. But apart from Christ's return in the... Short run, every single one of this, uh, us in this room is going to suffer physical maladies and every single one of us is going to die, giving evidence that we are not healed, that we are sick and that we are dying. So how could he say that? In a similar sense, he could say that. Because his work on our behalf is so certain and done in his bodily resurrection on behalf of everyone who would believe, he can say that regarding you, if you're a Christian, you have been healed. Done. You haven't experienced it yet because you won't until resurrection. But it's done. It's certain. Finished. Sort of like in Romans chapter 8, it says glorified. Past tense and nobody's been glorified yet. Romans 8. But because Christ's work is done, it's, it's a settled matter. So as I used to say to 
a church member uh, and friend who's in heaven now, Emmett, uh, who came out of a charismatic kind of background, and, and he would say to me, Pastor, I'm just praying for my healing when he was very, very sick and dying. And I said, I will join you, Emmett, in praying for your healing. But remember, even if you're healed, if God chooses to heal you from this, it's temporary because you're going to get something else. And we were close enough, I could say that. I said, you've got to get rid of your bad charismatic theology and know you are healed. So don't listen to the huckster. Pass that exit on your way to Omaha Bible Church. Jesus is better than you realize. It's not if you could just have more faith and do more, maybe God will heal you. No, it says in Isaiah 53, have been, right? By his stripes, you are healed, in other words. It's sure. Jesus, by restoring sight to the blind, should be communicating to you and to me, oh, Isaiah 61. Oh, Isaiah 53. If he can do that, he can do all of the other things. By way of preview, he's showing us that our faith is not in faith. And our faith is not in self. Our faith is in the one who actually, historically, does these things. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Well, by way of application, as if that wasn't applicable, <laughs> I, I want you to think about our passage and, and how it lays things out and Jesus touches them and it's done and they follow Him. But then I want to add Luke eighteen forty three to it, which is a cross-reference passage. And I want to end on this. So when you think about the different gospel accounts, I think of a movie set. And so you've got this camera focusing on this and this camera focusing on this. They capture different things for different purposes, sometimes different audiences. And here's a different camera angle by way of application for us. Here's how we should respond. It says in 1843, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, making much, magnifying God, making a big deal out of God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That's a good response. That's the right and fitting response to say, Jesus is different than all the other ones. I'm going to trust in him, yes, but I'm also going to be devoted to him. Praise be to him for being able to do that for us. He indeed is the one. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Father, thank you for time this morning together as a church. Thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ because we are people who are plagued with suffering and struggle with managing all sorts of different kinds of suffering. Thank you that you provided a Savior for us who is acquainted with our sorrows and with our griefs. And thank you that his work is successful and that he didn't come and try to heal people failing, that he did the very things he set out to do, that he was resolute and resolved to do so, proving again and again that salvation is found in him, deliverance is found in him that we can be saved from our sins and all of their effects ultimately in Christ. May he be our true and lasting hope. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. As you go, have a wonderful day.